Amen. That's why we come here this week, every week. Don't come here to listen to a message or to just sing some songs. We come here because He is worthy. It's worthy of all of our honor and all of our worship. If you turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 6, continuing for a few more weeks in the book of Mark, we're going to be doing uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 7 to 13 today. Mark chapter 6, verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Have you ever faced a situation in your life or a decision where you felt like you weren't ready to make that decision or go forward? I remember a few years ago when I was uh, dating Stephanie, uh, about one or two weeks after I started dating Stephanie, I felt like I wanted to marry her. Uh, I thought that maybe was a little bit too soon to pop the question, so I waited a little bit. And so I waited till January, which was about a little over three months after we started dating, and I bought a ring. But after I bought a ring, suddenly I was terrified. I thought, I don't know if I'm actually ready for this. I mean, I thought I was. I really want to marry her, but I I don't know that I'm ready for this. And so I bought the ring. I took it to my bedroom, put it in the closet, and hid it there. Every once in a while, I'd take it out and look at it for a little bit, then put it back into the closet. So I wanted to make sure I was sure, make sure I was fully ready. And so I waited, and I thought, maybe by Valentine's Day, and this, again, this was early January, I think maybe by Valentine's Day, that will be the time where I propose. But Valentine's Day came, and I was like, oh, I don't know that I'm ready yet. So I waited, and I waited. I prayed, I talked to other people about it, I uh, kind of researched what God's Word had to say about marriage, and I just kept waiting. And so the one-year anniversary of when we were started dating was coming up in October, and I thought that would be the perfect day to propose, one year after our first date. So uh, I kind of planned the day out, and uh, Stephanie and I were both taking off of work that day. Uh, so we went to a couple different places, and then I was planning on proposing after dinner. Uh, in the meantime, my brother was setting up some flowers and candles and stuff in a specific location uh, so that everything would be ready. So we're eating dinner, and I'm increasingly getting more and more and more nervous. And I could barely eat anything, and I had this uh, veggie burger, and I just ate a couple bites of it. I'm trying to eat as much as I can to you know, make her think that nothing is up, but I can only eat a couple bites. And so then I go to the bathroom, and I get so nervous, I call my brother, and I'm like, call it off, call it off, I can't do it, I can't do it. And then he gave me the best advice, or more of a command that I've ever received. He said, I'm out here with all of these candles and all these flowers, you are doing it. It's like, okay, I'll, I'll do it. 
So I ended up doing it, and thankfully I did, but I don't know that I ever felt ready. I mean, it was a big commitment, a lifelong commitment. Uh, So many questions that you couldn't foresee. So I don't think I ever felt fully ready. And I wonder if that's kind of how Jesus' disciples felt. Now, we looked at their story and looked at how many of the disciples were called, and we saw that they were unqualified people. They weren't religious professionals. They were fishermen, tax collectors, just common people. But we think to ourselves, okay, Jesus is calling them. They're unqualified, but being with Jesus is going to make them qualified. That being with Jesus is going to make, he's going to get them to a point where they're kind of superstars, and then he's, they're going to be able to go out and do Jesus' work. Almost like, you know, a football team like the Bills. They draft somebody in, you know, maybe the sixth or seventh or eighth round of the draft. And they don't plan on playing them right away. They kind of are teaching them, grooming them, preparing them for the time when uh, they're ready and then they can play. We think that's what Jesus is doing with his disciples. So now comes the time for his disciples to be sent out to do ministry on their own. We think they, they must be ready. They must have gotten to a certain point of spiritual maturity that now they're ready to do God's will, to perform, uh, do the things that Jesus did. But if we look closer at the Scriptures, I think that we'll find that they weren't so ready. We see in the Scriptures in Mark chapter 4, verse 38, that Jesus' disciples questioned Him. It says, And they woke Him and said to Him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? That was when the storm came up on the boat. In Mark chapter 5, verse 31, in the passage that Pastor Phil looked at a couple weeks ago, his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? So they questioned Jesus. We see that they didn't understand Jesus, even quite some time after this in Mark chapter 8. Jesus says, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts still hardened. The disciples may have also been included in the ones who opposed Jesus, who tried to stop his ministry in Mark chapter 3, verse 21. And these are the people who Jesus says, okay, I'm going to send you out as my witnesses. I'm going to send you out to do my ministry. Were they ready by human standards? Absolutely not. But Jesus was ready to use them for his kingdom. See, I don't think that we ever get, humanly speaking, ready to do what God has called us to do. As we're starting out following after Christ, I don't think we ever get to a point where we're fully ready to do what God has called us to do. We always will probably feel somewhat inadequate. We won't know enough about our faith to share it with somebody else. We won't have quite enough money to be able to give. We're not quite enough far along in our spiritual journey to be able to encourage or challenge somebody else in their faith. I don't think we ever really get fully ready. But not only are they not ready, but they're also not prepared. Jesus tells His disciples that they're not to take anything on their journey apart from their staff and their sandals. They're not to bring any bread, bag, or money in their belts, nor are they to bring two tunics That's similar to the Exodus when Israelites were to leave Egypt in haste, to be ready to do what God wanted them to do at any moment. See, Jesus wanted them to go on their mission without these items, and that was likely so that He would teach them to trust in Him. 
He took away all their securities and all their things that they might trust in so that they would have confidence in Him and Him alone. And I think God does the same thing in our lives today. He takes away our securities in order that we would realize that He will provide for us. That He's all we need. Sometimes we might feel like we're not prepared physically for what God has called us to. We think, how could I do what Christ wants me to do when I've got these health problems? I've got a bad back. I've got knee problems. How could I do what God has called me to do? We feel unprepared. Some of us will feel unprepared financially. How could I ever make a difference? My bank account is in the negative. Some of us feel unprepared spiritually. How could God ever use me? He knows how broken I am. He knows the struggles that I have. How messed up I am. And yet God chooses to use people who are messed up every single day. He instructs these disciples to go, just take a staff, just take your sandals, and I'll provide everything else. And that's what Jesus does for us today. He says, just go. Do what I've called you to do, and I'll provide everything that you need. I'll be enough for you. So we see the key that the key for Jesus' disciples and the disciples' ministry is not the fact that they're ready to serve. It's not the fact that they're prepared to serve. So what is the key to the ministry of Jesus' disciples? I would submit to you that according to this passage, the key to effective ministry is having authority and being in community. The key to effective ministry is having authority and being in community. First of all, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, this word ministry. When we talk about the word ministry, we might talk about being called to ministry. Uh, you might think of ministry as something that, uh, you know, maybe you have to go to school to do. You know, you go to school and go to seminary, and then you're ready for ministry. But the fact is, ministry is something that everybody in the church is called to. In fact, the pastor or the leadership of the church is not the primary, are not the primary ones that are called to ministry per se. In fact, it says in Ephesians four eleven to twelve that and he, speaking of Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, and here it is, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And so the job of a pastor or leader is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So ministry is something we're all called to, to reach out to those around us in word and in deed. So it's not just for religious professionals. And so Jesus gives the key to ministry in this passage, and the first key is the authority of Jesus. Jesus gives the disciples authority over unclean spirits. He tells them when they enter a town, if the town does not receive them, they're to shake the dust off their feet which would have been a symbol of judgment. So Jesus, what Jesus is doing here is He's giving His disciples authority. He's giving them the opportunity to go forward in His name, to be His representative, so, so much so that to reject His disciples was also to reject Jesus Himself. I think it's kind of similar to the command or the calling that Jesus gives us. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. 
to the end of the age. So the basis of the command is the fact that Jesus has authority. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. In other words, I've defeated all the forces of sin and darkness on the cross and in the resurrection. And so you have this message that I'm giving you. That whoever believes in me can be redeemed and saved from the wrath to come. And so we're Jesus' representatives. We carry with us an authoritative message. A message that has power to change lives. A message that has power to give us a new purpose. And we can have confidence that we'll be successful because of the authority of Jesus and because of the message we proclaim. So our focus is not on our preparedness per se, although we should do everything that we can to be prepared for what God has called us to do. The focus is not on our preparedness. It's on the gospel and Jesus' authority. See, we, our preparedness can kind of produce a crowd, can get some things done, but only the gospel can produce a child. Our preparedness can produce a crowd, but only the gospel can produce a child. Last week when we did the church in the park and kids carnival, we had quite a crowd. We told our friends, we put up signs, we shared the event on Facebook, and praised the Lord that we had a crowd. There were new people that came to the church that didn't know the Lord, and what a blessing that is. But though though we were able to get a crowd together, only the gospel can change people's hearts. Only the gospel can move someone who has no desire to know God to someone who is fully devoted to Him. Only the gospel can do that. The authority of God in someone's life. And so the first key to ministry is the authority of Jesus that He's given to us in the gospel. That through the power of the proclamation of the gospel, lives can be changed. The Holy Spirit can transform people. And so we spread life to those around us by proclaiming the gospel and having that authority that Jesus has vested to us. Of course, many will reject Him, but many will also find life. So the key first is Jesus' authority and the authority that Jesus gives us. That we are His representatives to the world to share the gospel. There's no plan B. We, the church, are Jesus' plan for the world. So that's the first. And then the second is community. Notice how Jesus sends the disciples. He doesn't send them one by one. He sends them two by two. This is first to establish a credibility, as it says in Deuteronomy 19.15, that a matter should be established by two or three witnesses. So this would have established their message as having more authority or being more believable. But I think he also does this because he didn't intend for us to live lives in isolation. There's no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. There's no such thing as a lone Christian who lives in isolation by himself apart from the community of faith. The writer of Ecclesiastes says this, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and is not another to lift him up. So God forms us into a people, a community devoted to Christ. And He puts us together so we might build each other up to help each other when we're down. A lot of times people, when they talk about community and they think about community, they think to themselves, well, the church I'm going to isn't meeting my needs. It's not meeting my needs. Well, I think there's a couple problems in that statement. 
First of all, have you told anybody your needs? We can't expect other people to magically know what our needs are if we don't share those needs with them. But second, there's a bigger problem. What are we talking about when we're talking about the church? Are we talking about the building that's located at 316 Thompson Street? Are we talking about the 501c3 organization called I Hope Church or uh, Lumber City Church or the chapel? What are we talking about when we're talking about the church? We're not talking about those things. We're not talking about the building. We're not talking about I Hope or Lumber City or the chapel. We're talking about people. We're talking about believers in Christ. No matter what fellowship you go to, no matter what church you go to, we're all one body. Everyone who's a believer in Jesus, we are one church. No matter where you worship. So when we say the church is not meeting my needs, we forget that we're a part of that church. We're a part of that problem, perhaps. Whose needs are we meeting? See, in our consumeristic culture, many of us have bought into this idea that the church exists for us. Just like we would go into a restaurant and we pay good money for them to provide good food for us, or we go into a store and we pay for them to provide services to us, we go to the church and we think that uh, they're supposed to provide services for us. And then if, if it's a good service, if we're entertained, then we put some money in the offering plate, we serve, we do this, we do that. But that's not the idea of the church. The church doesn't exist to meet our needs, per se. The church exists because of Jesus. The church exists because the Lamb was slain and yet rose again. The church exists because Jesus is worthy of all honor and all authority. And that He's so worthy that we need to fall down and and worship Him with all of our strength and with all of our lives. And so when we come together as the church, we don't come together to be entertained. We don't come together to be served. We come together to worship Jesus. And because we worship Jesus, we come out from that encounter and want to serve those around us. That's what the church is about. It's church is about Jesus Christ. It's not about meeting our own needs. It's about loving Jesus and serving those around us. And so we have the community of faith to help us when we're down, to encourage us, to strengthen us, and also for us to encourage others. And there's meant to be kind of give and take in that relationship. Some of us are just givers. We're constantly giving, giving, giving. No matter what it is, we're ready to serve, and that's awesome. But sometimes we need to be able to receive grace too. We need to be able to receive love from those around us. Sometimes we need to be able to be vulnerable enough to receive encouragement from those around us. Others of us are takers. We say, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this. Could you help me with this? You know, it never crosses our mind to help someone else. If we're going to be effective in ministry and effective as the church, we need both. We need to give and receive encouragement. Give and receive advice. Give and receive grace. Give and receive resources when necessary. That's what it looks like to live life in community. A group of people coming together, united around Jesus. United around this idea that Jesus changes everything. And because we're united around that, we are all encouraging one another in that common goal 
of becoming more like Christ and reaching the community around us. So those are the keys to ministry, I think, according to this passage. Having authority, the authority of Christ, and being in community. So I'd like to close by sharing a story to kind of sum up this idea. Uh, It's about a pastor and theologian named John Piper. um, Great influence in my life. And uh, it's about a time when he was really unprepared and not really ready for what was thrown his way. It was the it was the year 2000. It was the Passion One Day Conference, a gathering of uh, college students from all around the country. And he was speaking early in the afternoon about 1 p.m., and uh, the ground was soaking wet. Uh, it was in the six, 60s most of the day, briefly reaching a high of 72 degrees. Students were sitting on their jackets or on garbage bags to keep from getting wet. He says it was the biggest group I'd ever spoken to in my life. The size of the crowd made him anxious. He says, when I was in high school, I couldn't speak in front of groups. I was paralyzed with fear. It was a strange thing. My mother took me to the psychologist. So every time I stand before a new large audience, I've always have, I always have a lot of memories I have to overcome. But it wasn't always just the size of the crowd, but it was kind of the way that thing, things were set up there. The crowd was kind of restless. There's 40,000 people in kind of this open field, uh, and there weren't any you know, established bathroom breaks or lunch breaks or whatnot. And so people are just kind of milling in and out, in and out, the whole time that he's preaching. It's just a kind of chaotic scene. He, descri- he says it was like a stadium full of football watchers who keep going to get hot dogs. And it was also windy. About nine minutes into his sermon, half of, it, half of his notes blew away. He says, thankfully, it was the left hand half, which he had already finished. He says, I don't know what I would have done if the right hand notes had blown away. For the next 27 minutes, he held down his remaining notes with one hand, making all of his gestures with his right hand. And if you've ever seen John Piper preach, he's very, very demonstrative. He uses his hands a lot. So he says it was almost like he had been split in half. He says the atmosphere itself was almost entirely problematic. He says the fact that anybody got any help out of that message is evidence of sovereign grace. Yet that message that Piper gave that day was the most impactful message that he ever preached in, in his whole career. That message sparked a future book, a study guide, tracks and impacted unknown thousands and thousands of people throughout the country. To this day, some of the illustrations that he used in that sermon, if you would share that with some ministry leaders, thousands of ministry leaders in this country, they would know exactly what you were talking about. But he wasn't ready. He wasn't prepared for what was thrown his way. But Jesus was. Piper simply prepared, he simply spoke the gospel. He had the authority of the gospel. The gospel that, Romans, that Paul says in Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He had the power of the gospel, and he proclaimed that gospel. And it changed thousands and thousands of people's lives. That's the key to ministry having the authoritative message of the gospel 
sharing that with others in word and in deed, and doing that in the context of community. So ladies and gentlemen, Jesus has authority. He's given you an authoritative message to share with those around us. And as you do that, you have a family to, do, to carry out life with and carry out that mission with you. So let us share that message, the gospel, in the context of community. Let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the gospel by which we are saved. We thank you that you've given us an authority in the gospel, that as we proclaim the gospel, you've said that your word will not return void that there's an authority, that through the gospel, through our proclamation, but most of all through your Holy Spirit and through your work, lives can be changed. God, we thank you for giving us that privilege. We also thank you for giving us a family to do life with, a family to do ministry with, a family who can pick us up when we're down, a family who we can encourage uh, when others need encouragement, a family who is there for one reason, and that's for you. God, we just thank you for those gifts you've given us. I just pray that we'd be people of the gospel and people of community. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.